0: On this particular podcast, we're talking about living well in context with dying well. And Elliot, obviously, you've got a business called Revitalise in Gravesend, and you're an osteopath, personal trainer. Let's start by just asking you a little bit about yourself and your work and and why you have the passion for what you're doing.
1: My passion for health and fitness has always been there as as far as I can remember. I remember being 10 and, and reading my first big psychology book. I read Awaken the Giant Within by Tony Robbins and I was always interested in the potential of human nature or the potential of humanity. So how do we become the strongest version of ourselves, mentally the strongest version of ourselves, the smartest version of ourselves, because that's always been there. But then when I was 16, I, I was boxing and unfortunately I hurt my back a few days before I was supposed to fight and... I went to see an osteopath and the osteopath was able to treat me and get me ready for a fight in three days time. So that planted the seed. I then became interested in in that profession. So I then applied, you know, put my UCAS form into my personal statement to be to study to become an osteopath, which is a four year course, which I studied at the University College of Osteopathy. But at the same time, you know, just before we were about to go to university, I unfortunately had a very close friend die and he died of leukemia. A year, two years went by and I had another friend die of a melanoma and they were both 17, 18 at the time. And when I've spoken to a a few different professionals, I've spoken to a few therapists and kind of come to the conclusion that I I probably had a bit of a midlife crisis in my late teens where what normally happens to people when they're in their 50s or their 60s where they start to realise that time is running out. I really had that age 17 and every single day, I suppose because of what happened when I was seventeen i 'm forced to to view my life as a or my day at least and my life as a sand timer and I know that the i'm very very aware that the time's running out, and I then have to view my time as currency and decide what I want to do best with that time. My main inspiration, my main meaning that I get from life is by creating something to improve. The existence of individuals whilst they're blessed with their short amount of time on this planet. So that's why the clinic, the Revitalized Health and Fitness Clinic, has taken quite a multidisciplinary approach. I wanted someone to come in with depression, anxiety, pain, they might have high blood pressure, cholesterol. They can come in through one door and they have all the experts they need to help them to live, to remove their barriers to living a a full, pleasant, satisfying existence whilst they're on this planet.
0: That's amazing. And just to sort of dispel a few myths, it's always tricky with osteopathy, isn't it? I find it hard to define. Is it a sort of holistic approach? Is it mental well-being as well as physical well-being?
1: Yeah, so it's you can't it's, it's the same as trying to define modern medicine as what it was 200 years ago. You know, it just like 200 years ago doctors were prescribing leeches and electrotherapy and you know trying to shock the brains of patients when they had schizophrenia and all all kinds of nasty things like that osteopathy has moved on quite a lot in the past 200 years since it was founded but the fundamental differences is that you focus on the body's capacity to heal or you focus on the body's capacity for self-regulation whereas if you compare that to an allopathic philosophy so a, a typical medical philosophy it's more about a lot of it is about how you find the disease and how you eradicate the disease and I suppose with osteopathy you're forced to look at it at the body holistically because there are so many forms of protection that the body already has so when we look at for example pain the leading cause of pain or two of the leading causes of physical pain or a few of them would be poor sleep, depression, poor diet, poor exercise regime, poor belief systems. So if we flip that, we then see that the body's you know main defenses against pain would be good sleep, good diet, good exercise regime, good belief system, optimism. So you're forced to be holistic because you're forced to try and use the body's own mechanisms for healing. So that's, I suppose, the main difference between osteopathy and, say, more allopathic medicine. But The thing is, is is we've got so much good evidence coming out of the industry, coming from osteopaths, physiotherapists, chiropractors, psychotherapists, psychiatrists on what the body really needs or what what the individual really needs to get out of their own way and to live a pain free life. So you should find that most evidence based practitioners, and I would call myself an evidence based practitioner, will practice very similarly. And as long as they're evidence based, you know, you can't really argue with the science which is coming out of the industry. And It's pushing the industry in a really good direction in my opinion. that's interesting.
0: I, I tell you what I'd like to go back to the to that fascinating point you made actually. About what you described as a sort of late teen midlife crisis. It's interesting because it sounds to me like it was almost a midlife awakening, really. You lost two close friends, way too young to be dying. And that sort of shaped how, how you look at your own life and, and I guess your own profession. Is, is that a sort of mentality that you struggle to bring to people that
1: come in and just want to be healed? Absolutely, 100%. You know, if, if, if I try and apply my life lessons to my patients, I can only take my patient as far as they want to be taken. My job is a guide. I can only guide the patient towards where they want to be. And I can only utilise what the patient is willing to give. If the patient is very aware that they're going in the wrong direction when it comes to living a long, healthy, fulfilling life, and if they've got the proactive nature to do something about it, then it's a very, very fulfilling path to walk with them. A lot of patients come in with a bit of a, I suppose, an assumption that despite these poor decisions that they've been making for the last decade, few decades, they're just going to come in and they're going to, you know, the osteoporosis going to whack, whack, click, click, rub, rub, and they're going to walk out pain-free, which, you know, can be the case, but a lot of the times these patients keep coming back. And I think that unfortunately there are a lot of people who have been pacifised by, I suppose, a Western view of medicine which is that you go to the doctor when you're sick, the doctor takes the sickness away. The issue with that is that was very, very applicable in, say, the 1930s, 1940s, when the NHS was founded, when the leading causes of death were workplace accidents, viral infections, bacterial infections. These are all things that really benefit from an allopathic perspective because, yes, the doctor can put the disease under a microscope or he can see the wound, bandage it up, and then your own healing mechanism will take care of it. But unfortunately, the leading cause of disease now is lifestyle factors. They're chronic bombardment of the body with poor diet, poor belief systems, poor mindset, poor exercise levels. You can't really get to the bottom of these issues from an allopathic perspective. You have to get to the bottom of them from a therapeutic perspective. You have to guide that person. You can't you can't give them a pill for that ill. And um in terms of the work at at
0: the clinic or the center, forgive me if I use the wrong word, have you treated people that have been terminally ill?
1: Yeah, quite often. And um, sometimes it's about managing their pain as they're about to finish their journey. And for some of them, it's about keeping them optimistic and keeping them fit and keeping them comfortable whilst they're fighting, if it's not terminal, whilst they're fighting that disease off. But I've had the pleasure of spending quite a bit of time with patients who are terminally ill and the conversations are drastically different. The mood is drastically different.
0: Yeah. And, and obviously you you talked a little earlier about learning and and being shaped by the death of um, close friends. Do you find you learn even now when you're sort of accompanying a a terminally ill person or someone who's very sick?
1: You always learn what's important. You always learn what's important. At the end of the day, you know, if we finish work at 5 p.m., and it's 4 p.m. We're going to prioritise the most important tasks in that last hour. Whenever someone's time is running out, you always learn of what's most important. When someone is passing and when they, they've had someone who is passing, that is a very, very personal experience for them. So it's a very, very anecdotal experience. Once again, Carl Jung, who's one of the other founding fathers of psychology, said that research will show you the average of the individual, but it won't show you the depths of the individual. And a lot of the time, I think it is about more listening and guiding that individual to where they want to be. A lot of the time, that experience of that individual is shaped by the relationships that individual and their relationship with their history and what they've been through before. Personally, it shapes me because I really learn how varied human beings are. And yes, we do have core components. We prioritize love, company creativity development legacy all these things are are quite common to a lot of individuals but you it still rests on the individuality of the individual that I'm seeing at that point in time do
0: you know you've come out with some really visual phrases as well I particularly like that analogy of the sort of you know four o'clock time when when things close at five and it it makes me think a bit about you know, those that are dying, because I've read testimonies and spoken to people that when they have been given a a terminal diagnosis, and they know that their time is short, and they're going to die, that they sort of say, well, I wish I'd been, you know, this focused, this reconciled a little bit earlier when I was still healthy. Do you hear that sort of psychology at all?
1: Yeah, yeah. So you're talking about the psychology of regret, right? Which I think is, when it comes to dying, well, I think, Using your time whilst you're alive to imagine what you would regret, and work to make sure you do not regret anything by the time that your time is, you know, coming to pass. It's a little bit carpe diem, isn't it? It's a bit sort of seize the day, really. Don't wait. Don't, don't. Absolutely, absolutely. And through myself going to to therapy, and a few speaking to our therapists here, and from speaking to other people, there are so many individuals who are constantly working through the defence mechanisms. So the defence mechanisms might be anger, it might be to fit in, it might be social conformity, it could be to appear well to their peers, all these defence mechanisms which are there to satisfy the psyche, to make sure that the psyche is protected or to make sure that that individual is, I suppose, yeah, protected throughout their existence, throughout their, their normal archetypal experience. The whole time that your defence mechanisms are up, it's very difficult to see yourself. It's very difficult to build a relationship with yourself. And the one thing I do see 100% is that when people are terminally ill, their defence mechanisms go. They're no longer trying to protect themselves because there's no need to protect themselves at that point in time. They know that their their time is imminently going to be up. And it's at that time that they might actually start for the first time to realise who they are. That's beautiful, but it is a real shame at the same time. Why do individuals have to wait until they realise the time is up to really, like you said, seize the day, to realise who they are? I very, very, very much advise anyone who wants to develop a deeper relationship with themselves to go to a therapist with the goal of that therapist coaching them to understand who they are and it's very very likely and i have to be honest the same thing is is available through religion i think religion is a great way to understand who you are and what's important to you through meditation through self-reflection i'd very much advise that people go through that process whilst they have the time
0: and this might seem a little unfair and putting you on the spot a bit but what would you if you had to sort of come out with a sentence or two instantly off the top of your head what would you say dying well looks like what what is
1: dying well in your opinion i suppose dying well for me is contextualized by my life right i think that if i can be on my deathbed and say that there is not really one point in time where i would have done anything different that for me is 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 the perfect ending to my book or to my life i think having peace to just retreat into myself on my deathbed knowing that i've done a good job i think that's what Dying well means to me. Interesting, and, and conversely, what would you say is living well? Living well for me is leveraging every speck of time that I spend on on this planet to help as many people as possible. That's what I obsess about. How can I help more people? How can I create infrastructure? How can I improve my skill set? Improve other people's skill sets. Improve my team's skill set. Improve our reach to help as many people as possible. That's my the way that I view life. I think that's how I view life in terms of you know what i most enjoy doing proactively but then as well as that you know building a healthy relationship with my family making sure that i am living well with my family's eyes making sure i'm living well with my fiance and my future wife's eyes my children's eyes the ancient egyptians used to believe that the soul dies twice once physically and you die secondly when people stop saying your name so through libation and i have to say that i would i would agree with that i think the more good work you've done and the more people are speaking of you after you've gone and retelling your story. I think that's a very good way of measuring how valuable your life was.
0: And those young men that died too soon, those friends of yours, do you still sort of, in light of what you've just said about the ancient Egyptian philosophy, do you still think about them a lot? Do you
1: recall them? And Every day I've got a picture of my friend Ben on my, in my clinic room. So every time I walk in, I see him and um, yeah, and I'm, I definitely know, you know, what, what I remember about him, I remember his attitude, his his drive, his beauty. You know, there's aspects of his character which were beautiful, whether that was his sense of humour, his camaraderie, all these nice things. So, yeah, I, I remember him and speak about him often. Dan, Daniel Cruz, who's is, is another friend who passed. I remember him and, and speak of him often. He was very, very charismatic, very creative individual, very, very headstrong. And I think that's, you know... Because now that I'm thinking about it, I'm reflecting on myself and my own interpretation. And I always remember when people pass, I always remember when they stood up and they said something. I don't remember when they retreated. So I think that's also a good thing for me to acknowledge and live by that every single time that we speak up and every time that we stand our ground on something that we believe in or something that we believe is important to us, we're shaping the world for a better place. Every time that we take a step back, we don't say anything because we want to keep face. We don't want to hurt someone's feelings, even though what we have to say brings value to the table. People don't remember that. People remember when we as individuals stand up and say something and do something for the better.
0: Spot on. That's really inspiring, Elliot. Let's just turn our attention to... COVID-19 because obviously you're a business you've got a wonderful um, philosophy behind your business uh, to help people and to continue improving but it must have been hard for you during lockdown and possibly even post lockdown how did you cope during those sort of
1: lockdown months? Well I had to gain perspective right you know we lost two three months of revenue and and to pay two three months of overheads but I lost people who I knew due to the virus I would have paid that you know a hundred times over to keep them alive so the, the i've got my life i'm healthy i'm fit my family are healthy and fit i'm I'm grateful it was difficult, but when you're dealing with death it's it's a no brainer I'll, I'll happily close my doors for two three months to help to slow the spread and uh, now that we've opened back up obviously we you know we're making sure that we're fully equipped with p p e making sure that we're putting all the regulations and policies in order to make sure that our patients are protected. So uh, for, for me, I was happy to close my doors. It was a duty that I happily partook in.
0: Sure. And and then just really in terms of, of post-lockdown, where we're at now, there's still people still have that anxiety, don't they? Um, they're still concerned about a, a second spike and whether, whether that means we'll have to literally isolate and be separated from one another, all those things that we, we talked about that challenge us. Are you finding people have a, a sort of different mentality these days? Are they more health conscious? Do they want to look after themselves better because of the pandemic and the shadow that's cast over the world?
1: It seems that people are definitely more health conscious. They, what lockdown really taught us is what is truly valuable um, and what people really missed. And social interaction was one people were going out for more walks, running, getting out into the countryside, really focusing on what they value. There's more people I speak to, professionals who are just refusing to go back into the office full-time because they realise how valuable their spare time is. So yeah, I would say that there's a definite shift. I think that there are some people who are very cautious, understandably so, but the numbers, at least here in Kent, the numbers are are very promising. I think it's about one in 7,000 people has uh, coronavirus in um, in Kent at the moment and the numbers are are dropping
0: and that's a big county as well isn't it so perhaps there's grounds for for uh, cautious optimism
1: absolutely 100 cautious optimism is the way forward I think absolutely to make sure that you're being safe but still living your life
0: listen Elliot it's been absolutely fascinating but just just one final question really what would your sort of encouragement be to those that are thinking, I do need to make a change. I'd like to live my life
1: better. I'd like to live well. It's very, very specific to the individual because some people value that bottle of wine every evening and a takeaway every so often rather than you know eating their fruits and vegetables and, and living a long life. right? But I think that the, the best thing I could hope for people is that they just get out of their own way. And I think the best way to do that is to be able to see your mind and realise that you are not your anger, you are not your anxiety, you are not your greed or your gluttony, you're not. You're none of these things. You are the captain of your ship. You have these crew members on your ship, and these crew members might be anger, jealousy, greed, which are useful at certain times, right? You can use those in the right situations at the right time. But to realise that you're the captain of your ship At least then, through the pursuit of consciousness and through the pursuit of understanding yourself and knowing yourself, you can then coordinate your life to reach your true potential and you're not purely reacting to social norms or reacting to these inner drivers that we all have. So I think that the biggest hope that I would have for an individual is that they pursue trying to realise who they are and once they realise who they are and once they can captain their ship, They captain their ship for the betterment of themselves and for humanity.